Stanford University. ETL, it is my pleasure to introduce Josh Macauer. Josh is an incredibly impressive fellow, and I'm sure you will agree with me at the end of this hour. He is the founder and chief executive officer of ExploraMed, and also a venture partner at New Enterprise Associates. I got a chance to get to know Josh because he's the co-founder of the biodesign program at the med school and teaches over there as well. But the one of the things that is most impressive about him is that he has four, over four dozen patents in a huge range of medical fields, including cardiology, ENT, general surgery, drug delivery, orthopedics, and urology. And he's also been involved with starting six different companies. He's going to tell us today about the perfect storm in medtech, and he's going to use his experiences in his own companies as a backdrop. Thanks so much, and welcome, Josh. Thank you, Tina. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for coming out for this. Appreciate it. Um, so uh, I'm just going to walk through a little bit of background and talk about a recent uh, company experience and then really kind of hit on to the big topic, which is uh, some of the challenges that uh, we, we are facing right now uh, in med tech specifically uh, and, uh, and kind of uh, try to get people active. Uh, in this space to uh, kind of get a little activism going and maybe help uh, reverse the course of uh, some of the changes. Um, so this is uh, a diagram of my uh, background all in one big picture. Um, starts off with uh, a background in engineering and, and, uh, and business and uh, medicine and uh, kind of got my first experiences in business at Pfizer uh, working as first a technology analyst and then ultimately starting a in-house incubator at Pfizer which was called uh, Fresh Tech with a PF because it was PF for Pfizer. So, And uh, our mission was to really identify a process for innovating new medical technologies and to ask the question is it possible to innovate inside of a big company? And uh, we discovered that the answer was yes it is possible to do that. It's possible to have a reproducible process that one can use and if you follow that process you will create new ideas that are pretty impactful. Um, the challenge in a big company comes when those ideas are actually created, how do they actually wind up becoming uh, you know, fully funded and you know, kind of allowed to exist? That's where the challenge comes. So it's not about, uh, the challenge is not how to find and create them. That can be done quite routinely with the process, but the other elements are things that culturally in a big business uh, are the big challenge. Once I left uh, Pfizer uh, after uh, getting an MBA at Columbia, I went on to uh, uh, meet uh, and was introduced to John Neer at uh, NEA. Uh, that was 15 years ago. And we sat in a burger place uh, in and out over in the city and uh, sketched out on a napkin what Exploramed was going to be as an, as an incubator. At that point, there really was no medtech incubator and the incubator concept uh, most people were considering was a place where you build a building you make a bunch of offices and then people come in and use the the conference room and this was a very different kind of concept where we would basically allocate money uh, to the pursuit of verifying finding and validating a uh, an idea that could become a company and then uh, once we 
you know, thrown everything that we could at it to make sure that it could stand on its own as a company, we would start the company with the goal of reducing the likelihood of failure uh, and try to fail fast inside the incubator and then get these things out uh, earlier. And so that's basically what I've been doing for the last 15 years is producing medical device companies, uh, three of which have been acquired at this point. And, uh, and along the way, ran into Paul Yock, and together uh, we created the Biodesign Innovation Program, and I'll talk a little bit about that. But in the, in the broad spectrum, you know, this entire phase of my life from Pfizer onwards, let's say, you know, 20 years, last 20 years, I've uh, really been addressing this singular issue, which is uh, to make people try to rethink about how they think about who an innovator is. And uh, if, you, if you think of, you know, if I say, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of an innovator? You will probably think of somebody with crazy hair uh, locked away in a basement or a garage working, tinkering on something, probably not very good social skills, uh, and, uh, and somewhat removed from society. And then all of a sudden, a brilliant uh, vision comes to them. They build it. And before you know it, um, they have some amazing new invention. And, uh, and unfortunately, that's what we've been kind of led to believe. Uh, our society has brought us down this path. But it couldn't be further from the truth in terms of what it's all about. And so the real concept is that we're all innovators. And we all have the potential to innovate. And some of you are actually going to be really, really good at it. And maybe you don't know it yet because you haven't had the opportunity to train to, to be one. And so uh, if you can identify that, obviously some will be more skilled than others. There's obviously some natural talent, like with any kind of sports or whatever. whatever. You know, I'm not the best basketball player, even though I know how to throw one. Uh, but the concept is if you can, you can develop it in people, you can teach them, they can get better, they can learn that discipline, and with that discipline, just become really excellent at it. And, uh, and we've uh, demonstrated this uh, for multiple years. Uh, and people have come in who had no patents before but really had a desire and basic fundamental education to do it, come out and become real innovators and start companies and, and do great things. And they do it better than they might have if they were not being trained. So important elements, access to the customers, uh, the right environment. You've got to have an environment that accepts failure, <coughs> accepts, uh, you know, accepts the, the fact that you know, we don't always get it right the first time. And, uh, and, and embraces that in the, in the pursuit of the ultimate uh, solution to a problem. Uh, a good team, the right people, people that can work together, and of course, the right amount of resources. And in, in, in just its basic form, this is, the, this is the process. And I think the most interesting thing about this process that people don't really think about is that it, is, uh, it starts with deciding what you want it to be before you've invented it. And that's kind of a different concept uh, for, for some people. They kind of think, well, I've got to think of an idea. Well, like, gee, let's see, what should it be? But actually, um, if you think about what it needs to be before you invent it, then you'll know when you found it. And starting with that strategic structure, it's got to be a business of a certain size. It's got to address a certain population. It's got to have intellectual property protection. It's got to be able to... Uh, you know, be achievable within a certain time frame. Whatever your parameters are, it's going to be different for an individual versus a big company versus a small company. So uh, those are all different. But when you figure out what that is for you, it really sets a framework that you can act on.
The next fundamental step is another one that seems relatively obvious, but it's amazing how few people do it, which is to focus on the need. And when we say focus on the need, and I see some of my fellows here in the room, uh, they know that, that what that means. It sounds so simple to do, of course. You're going to look at a need, and then you're going to kind of solve it. But there's a, there's a discipline to that. Because as human beings, we desire to not be in an uncertain place. We want to have certainty. We want to know what the answer is. We want to run to the answer. In fact, as soon as we think of the first idea that we can think of, which usually happens as soon as we start getting exposed to problems, we come up with that idea, and then that's the only thing that's filling our mind is the solution. But what happens then is you fall in love with that solution. You can't get it out of your mind. You can't change. You can't think of anything else. So the discipline is actually to not invent, but to actually focus on the problem and to spend the appropriate amount of time really digesting that problem, living in that problem, understanding the parameters, the where, is, where, where are the needs of this problem? What are the, what are the, what's the specification that needs to be met to solve this problem the best? And when you've developed that discipline, you're able to release yourself from this desire to get to certainty quickly, and you can live in that place where you can really see the problem for what it is, and that's what we've done in every one of the companies that we've started. We've been in that place, and as a result, we've created something that other people have never thought of before. And so that's, that is where the, the whole process value is. The rest of it's all straightforward. Once you really have that problem specked out, brainstorming is easy. I mean, in fact, you came up with so many ideas, you couldn't believe it. But here's what we got going into it. We got a great specification of what it needs to be once it's invented. And that helps us very quickly figure out which was the best idea. And we are able to divorce ourselves from just loving one idea and move on to multiple. M move on to the one that's right. Okay, so we've reduced this into a much more elaborate process, which is detailed in the book that, uh, we, that came out, uh, we, that we put out a, a couple of months ago, and that we use as a textbook for the bi-design course here at Stanford. But I just mentioned this as a backdrop because it really is a fundamental aspect of you know how I've gotten to where I am today and you know kind of what we try to train people to do so that's the background part let's move on to the uh, the entrepreneurial story part and uh, every time I look at this picture it's kind of uh, really uh, a fun picture for me to look at it's uh, John Chang's first day uh, at what was then called ExploreMed NC1 new company one um, and uh, there we are, we look a whole lot younger and, uh, and, and definitely a lot less uh, battle scars, uh, you know, wrinkles on her face, etc. cetera. Uh, and amazingly, that was only six years ago, but still, uh, it, it's amazing what, what, uh, what a business can uh, kind of extract from your life. But uh, there we are, you know, first day on the job. We don't know what we're going to do. We have no idea. Uh, this is the first day, blank sheet of paper. And that's something that's some part of my model. It's a little different than other incubator models. Is I start with a person. So my whole, t you know, approach is that person is the fundamental basis around which we build a company. They have to be trained. They have to have the right experience. They have to be ready. They have to have been successful. They have to know how to get a product from concept to commercialization before. But maybe this is they've never started a company before. They've never. Um, you know, done it on their own before. 
but they're ready. And, uh, and they've got the right kind of uh, heart and soul, uh, ethics, you know, all those things that are really important that go into uh, uh, someone who, who can be this role. And that's the role of Project Architect Experiment. So there we are, first day. Kind of fun little memory there. So uh, this is what we kind of came up with as we began to try to understand the needs of the area of chronic sinusitis. That became an area of interest because I was a chronic sinusitis sufferer. And uh, I was very interested in trying to find a solution. But you know, when I thought about chronic sinusitis, I thought about itis must be an infection probably addressable by drugs. So I didn't even expect that we'd find any device solutions. And being a device person, you know, I, I, I thought that uh, that was what I wanted to do. So you know, my criteria was it has to be a device solution. Because if it was going to be a pharma thing, biopharma or what have you, that's not my expertise. And I knew that that wasn't what I was going to do. But that didn't stop me with, you know, I just said, I'm going to learn about this thing and see what it, what it needs to be. Uh, there's a lot of people outside, but there's lots of seats available. Come on in. So, uh, so we came up with this structure. Okay, we came up with an engineering engineering uh, concept of uh, of sinusitis. And what you have here is uh, we realize that there's two components. There's a bony scaffold, which really su supports the 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 mucosa that lines the sinuses, and a uh, and a dynamic component which is the mucosal surface. And that mucosal surface can swell. And if you've got a really tight passageway because of the bony structure, and then the mucosa swells, well, the whole thing blocks off, and a cascade of problems start happening. And, and you get acute sinusitis. And with all that swelling in certain people who have that certain anatomical structure, they progress into a chronic sinusitis. And they can have pain for years, like I did. I had you know, a consistent chronic pain you know, inside your head every day, wake up in the morning, go to sleep at night, and all you're thinking about is how do I manage my day so I could just kind of get through it and not have a headache. And so I wasn't even, I wasn't even that bad. But people would say to me, you know, you, uh, you're, uh, you're not bad enough for surgery. And I was thinking to myself, how bad do you need to be to get surgery? Because this certainly feels pretty bad. So that was the motivation for, you know, a clarent. And, you know, what we came up with, and this is, kind of the aha picture, okay? We spent a lot of time looking at these needs, trying to understand it, and I looked at this picture out of the corner of my eye, and it looked like an angiogram. Now, for those of you that aren't into medicine, an angiogram is a, is a, uh, a situation where you're injecting a contrast agent, something that can be, that actually uh, prevents the penetration of x-rays into a structure within the body, and you're sending x-rays through, and as a result, you get this pattern, which is where, which is basically showing all the structures where the contrast agent isn't. But you see this pattern of the blood vessels, so it looks like a little bit like a tree, you know, because the blood vessels kind of branch, and you can see where the blood vessels go, and you can also see where they're kind of tight, and where they, they have little, uh, little lesions inside the blood vessel, and that's the basis upon which they direct angioplasty catheters to go put those little balloons in there and dilate those tight spots. When I looked at this, I said, you know, I wonder whether it's possible to put a flexible catheter like a balloon catheter that they use for, you know, coronary uh, angioplasty into the sinuses and do the same kind of thing. Could, it, could, you, could you dilate 
the sinuses like that. And so uh, that was the idea for a clarinet. We tried it. It worked. And, uh, you know, I'm going to fast forward. And, uh, you know, this is what we were able to accomplish in the last six years. Uh, we, we were able to take that concept to commercialization in 18 months. So from we, we basically, nine months in, we were in, in patience. Nine months later, we were through the FDA, and we had it on the market. And um, filed lots of patents. We were able to raise a lot of money to do this. It took a lot of money to do it. Um, we've created a lot of publications, a lot of clinical data. Uh, we've, to date, we've treated over 100,000 patients now. We treat about... Uh, 350 patients a day uh, worldwide. Um, revenue rate greater than 100 million a year, uh, 375 jobs, and, uh, and it was acquired for actually 820 million. Uh, net of cash, 785. So they had, they, there was cash on the books, and that they, that's the, the published amount, but it was actually 20 million for the acquisition of the business. So um, when, you, when you look at that, you, you say, well, gee, it sure looks easy, but man, do we have challenges. And that's the part that I don't think a lot of people realize, the challenges that we have and the challenges that, that the business still has, quite honestly. Um, the biggest one was the one that I was uh, the most disappointed in, being a physician myself, was the physician's unwillingness to change. Um, you know, I kind of had this idealistic view that you come up with a technology really makes people better, it's easy to use, patients like it, the outcomes are better, everything's, you know, you save tissue, you save, you save the patient, it's all good, how can somebody not love that? And, uh, and the answer is, well, because that's not the way people were trained to do it. And that's not, there isn't reams and reams of data on it, it's new. And so, uh, why should I do that and, you know, get out of my OR? So, that was quite interesting. Um, more, more to, to beyond that, the next thing that was somewhat disappointing were the harsh tactics that were used to try to undermine the company and, and, the, uh, and the way and the struggles that we had with some of the leadership was, was quite, quite and, and we still have, quite honestly. Um, and uh, and I, I didn't, the piece that I didn't understand going into this, and I, you know, usually I have this matrix of things, you've got to check that box, check that box. I didn't have a box. I'm trying to understand the politics within the society itself. That was not something I really realized was an important element of trying to navigate a technology. I, I guess in retrospect, it makes sense it should, but I just didn't think it mattered. Um, the answer is it matters. You got to know who's who. Certain people need to be involved because uh, if they're not, they get angry. And uh, you know, they're people and, and, uh, and people have emotions and that's, that's the way it is. So, so I think you know, in a lot of ways, our uh, you know, early uh, fervor and excitement and enthusiasm was really misunderstood uh, by a lot of that com clinical community in the early days. And there were a lot of misunderstandings that really delayed us. And, we, and, and because of this, we really, in, in the early days, I think we struggled to survive. Um, and that was, uh, that was part of it. So, and we haven't really solved these issues. They still continue, and, and they will continue. And they, this, is a, this is, isn't just... ENT, it's other spaces as well. It's, it's something that you, if you decide to innovate in this space, you need to be aware of. There's well-entrenched ways that things are done, and you need to think about how you compellingly make those changes, not just with the clinical argument, but with other arguments as well that get change to happen. So, but when I look back at what our keys to success were, and they were 
you know, the idea worked. We were able to navigate the FDA process. It was predictable. Uh, investors had confidence in our patents. Uh, they, they knew that uh, eventually we would get protection. Um, and then that would be powerful that we could enforce those patents. Um, we, could, we had ready access to financing, um, able to obtain great clinical advice, work closely with our, our clinical advisors, get them in the lab, pay them appropriately, incentivize them appropriately to take time out of their practices to spend with us. Uh, we were able to go into a scenario where the reimbursement uh, was already there in place for the procedure. Uh, and we were able to quickly establish it and kind of get it covered under that umbrella. Uh, we were able to attract great people and we worked really hard and never gave up. But when I look at this list and I think about some of the challenges that now face the med tech industry, this is what's at risk, is the opportunity to do this again, um, given what has happened within the last just couple of years, just within the last two years. There have been some dramatic things that have happened, and that's what I'm really going to talk about for the rest of the talk here, and hopefully try to get some of you who care about this and want to be in this space to take uh, some action and, and help uh, make things better. I mean, we are essentially facing what is essentially a perfect storm in med tech. There, it's the global financial crisis. It's the certain aspects of health care reform. It's not all bad, but there's certain aspects that are quite damaging for our industry. Uh, limitations on the ability to interact with physicians, certain aspects of patent reform that are quite scary. Uh, changes at the FDA, potentially devastating. And, uh, and a broken reimbursement system that really penalizes things that are new and, and potentially better and puts a really high bar on their success. So that's what we're going to talk about. So let's go through each one one by one. First thing is this whole global financial crisis has impacted the VCs. You've probably heard about this lots of times from other speakers. And as a result, venture funds are really funding the companies that they already have. They, there's less and less opportunity for a new company. So, you know, this is the backdrop. You know, what's going to make this better over time will be, you know, the, park, the markets have to turn around, that people have to believe again, and that, that will happen. But I really put the slide up just to kind of lay the backdrop as for all the other things that are going on right now in our industry. The reimbursement climate, as I mentioned, is exceptionally challenging. I mean, most people don't realize that there are three fundamental elements to actually get paid for medical technology. First, there has to be a code. So if you've invented something new, there's no code. Well, that could take several years just to get a code. Well, once you get a code, you have to think, hey, we're home free, ready to go. No. Now you have to have coverage. People have to agree that they're going to cover that coded procedure in their uh, payment system. And private insurers, what's their motivation? I mean, they, they, you know, that's extra money that they have to pay out. So they're going to set a high bar. CMS, same thing. I mean, they're worried about expense. So they're going to really, they're really going to put some significant scrutiny on deciding that they're going to cover it. So now, once they, you cross that barrier, you've got coding and coverage, well, what are they going to pay? Sometimes they decide to pay less than the price of your device. Where does that leave you? So you've got to fight these battles every step of the way. That's what's ahead. And sometimes you get a code that is like a Category 3 code. There's different types of codes. 
you get a Category 3 code, you are in a box. You're like in a penalty box for potentially years because it basically says you're experimental and don't come back for a certain amount of time. And it's basically, I mean, imagine, you know, the venture people paying while you're trying to go through this process. It's quite devastating. So that's already there. I mean, this, these are things that were already there. We were already dealing with them. But in the context of some of the other things I'm going to mention, again, another layer of complexity that people have to realize how difficult it is to navigate a new medical technology. Now let's talk about patent, patent reform a little bit. I think here, through lots of lobbying efforts of, you know, myself and our, you know, Eb Bright and, and uh, folks at the Foundry and, you know, really our med tech community as a whole, we have made some major progress here. I think the change in the patent commissioner to David Kapos has been a major breath of fresh air. He has a great uh, group that he's brought with him. He, he understands the importance that intellectual property pays, uh, pl plays for medtech especially. And he's been very, very, uh, very, very clever in the way that he's trying to go about it. And uh, so I feel much better about this slide than I did, let's say, a year ago when the previous patent commissioner, I think, really in his mind, uh, was really hoping that the way that he would deal with the patent backlog is just those damn inventors stop inventing things. You know, we could get rid of this backlog. You know, that's the big problem. It's just too inventive. So, uh, you know, that's not, a good, that's not a good way to go for America. Um, healthcare reform. So, you know, there was lots of uncertainty. Well, now we have some certainty. And really, as a whole, healthcare reform for the medtech industry, uh, you know, is, is a net neutral. I mean, it's most of it, I don't think it's going to help you know, promote new technologies or innovation. I don't think it's going to hurt it, except for three very important issues. The big one is this medical device tax. Now, most of people, every time you hear people complaining about taxes, you say, well, you know, everybody's got to pay taxes, you know, too bad. But let me explain why this particular tax is exceptionally damaging for innovation in med tech, and I think you'll appreciate why people are so upset about it. It's not a tax on profits. It's a tax on revenue. The other thing to recognize is that when you have a med tech company, you could be making, oh well, not making, you could be, you have revenue of 25, 50, 75 million dollars in revenue and still not be profitable because of the costs of actually getting the people in there to train appropriately, paying for the regulatory clinical studies, all of this stuff is expensive. And so, uh, with a Clarence, we did not see any dollar of profitability until we approached 85 million dollar run rate on a yearly basis. And so we think about that. Wow. That means that venture people, investors, are going to be writing checks to the government for the privilege of investing in medical technology. So it's, it's, it's really devastating. Not only do med tech companies now need to raise money to pay for development, get the sales going, all that kind of stuff. Now they're going to have to raise money to pay the government to be allowed to have the privilege of not making any money for the, until they you know, reach profitability. It just isn't going to work. So we've got to fix that one big time. Um, comparative effectiveness, I think we have yet to understand what that is. Potentially scary for novel technologies if they're going to say, all right, you fledgling technology, let's compare you against what we've been doing against the past 40 years when it hasn't even really fully developed yet. That could be really scary. But we don't know what that is. Hopefully it'll be executed in, in an enlightened way with respect to novel technology. Um, payment reform, et cetera. Let's talk about 
the Sunshine Act, which is a component of health care reform, so you can understand why people are a little upset about this. Now, I believe in transparency. I think transparency is a good thing to know what's going on. But at what level? What level really matters? Right now, the current law says any med tech company that provides something of value, could be lunch, could be a, a two Starbucks coffees, of $10 or more has to be recorded and published on a website for every physician interaction that is in that category. That means that you think about the administrative costs of that and who's going to pay for that. It's going to be the healthcare system. We're trying to reduce costs here. And so there's an obsessive view, there's an obsessive uh, focus on these cash as a motivator. But $10? Come on, give me a break. I mean, $10 is not going to make doctors forget what the right thing to do is, okay? We could set a little higher limit. It might be a little bit more, less burdensome. This is exceptionally burdensome. 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 Okay, but, but here's the big thing that really irks me. Because whoever came up with this law has obviously not stepped foot into an academic situation where there's no money. But believe me, there's, there's lots of conflicts and, and, and power and prestige and political power and, and being right can be like such a much bigger motivator than 10 bucks. That that's what, get, that's what people forget. And unfortunately, what has happened is anyone who has some kind of financial interest has been removed from the debate about new technologies, yet all the people who have all sorts of academic conflicts and political conflicts are still in the debate. And that's really concerning. And as patients and, and you know, consumers of healthcare, you know, we should be worried about this. Because guess what? We fought a lot of physicians on the way to Bill the Clarent who did not really see the vision, who did not like it. They did not want things to change. They liked it the way it was. They thought it was appropriate. They didn't believe that the technology could work. And they, they really tried to stop it. Imagine if, if the only people who could decide on the future of novel technology were people like that. That's what we you know, may be facing if we don't take a, a better appreciation of what real conflict is, and instead of eliminating conflict of interest, we manage conflict of interest. We acknowledge it. We expose it. You have a relationship, you got to say it. All that type of stuff, transparency. But if we try to cross, you know, make a line, then the only people who will be making decisions will be those that are not informed. And that's very dangerous for patients. So the FDA. Um, are you depressed yet? <laughs> Here we go. Uh, you know, the FDA's mission is, is a valid one. It's to provide reasonable assurance of safety and efficacy and to promote innovation. Sometimes people forget about the second bullet here, promote innovation. What does that mean? And how is it being interpreted? Now, when, they, when it was all set up, there was supposed to be a, a, a least burdensome standard upon which... Uh, the, this would be implemented so that companies would be allowed to survive. Because one could try to eliminate all possible risk and kill any possibility that any of innovations is going to survive. Because there's always a risk 
almost unavoidable. You can't eliminate all risk. So uh, what's happened is when uh, after Obama was elected, a letter was sent to Congress and Obama by a, a group of disgruntled uh, employees at CDRH claiming that the management of CDRH uh, is in cahoots with business and that they're not making the right decisions, et cetera. And so there's been a lot of scrutiny. And in fact, a lot of the people named in that memo are now gone. And I don't really, and I, there was an investigation, and I think the investigation showed that not, there was no wrongdoing uh, by those people. But what's happened is there's now a wave of fear. Uh, there's a wave, so, all, so what you have to realize is the people that review these incoming applications at the FDA generally are well-meaning, uh, scientifically oriented, people who recently have ex exited school and they have, you know, full of ideals and they, they feel a tremendous responsibility for society that they need to protect everybody. And, but they don't have a lot of experience and they don't have a lot of exposure to the real risks and benefits that patients, that patients and physicians face every single day and how willing some patients and some physicians might be to take certain risks. And, and we look, we do it all the time. We accept a certain amount of risk in all of our activities in life. And especially when we need a therapy, we accept some of these risks. We d I, I, believe me, I, if we took a poll right here, we, maybe we should, how many people would like to avoid all possible risk and what the impact of that would be on the innovation and the opportunity to be exposed to a new therapy. When we, we just need to be educated. And today, we're educated better than ever. The internet is, you know, you can get so much information off the internet. You know, a, an article comes out in the New York Times, it's all over the world and practice patterns can change overnight. So we're not dealing with a situation where once this thing is released, you know, if it's not right, it can't be fixed, it can't be recalled, it can't be dealt with. There is those opportunities. But because of this whole thing, there's been a whole desire, you know, there should be no fast path. You know, people view this 510K process as a fast path. It, it isn't a fast path. It, it, it's, it is faster than PMA, hopefully, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't been scrutinized. Many 510Ks go through a clinical trial. So, you know, this is, there's, there's a lot of misperceptions. And I think as a society, here's, here's the message, you know, for, for you and whoever is listening. We got to decide what we want. If we want new medical technologies, if we want to see progress and innovation, we have to accept a certain amount of risk. It comes with the unknown of something new. But that doesn't mean you have to get that therapy. But should we prevent others that want to get an exposure to it? Should we prevent everyone from having the opportunity to get exposed to it? How much of a barrier do we want to create in front of our ability to gain access to new technology, to have that opportunity even though we know it might not work, even though it might we know it might not work for everybody. Uh, we want to understand what those risks are. We want to understand what the, uh, what the safety balance is. But let, I, I think we don't want to have a organization stand in our way of access to what people in the rest of the world really have access to. And that's what's going on right now. Many and many, many technologies are available overseas that are not available here. And it's just because of our process. So you know, this is an issue. Um, so we discussed this. The big issue is that, and you know, my concern, and even sharing this with you, is is that 
you know, if we don't fix it, then the bright minds, the creative people who are looking to build their careers, we're not going to be able to continue to bring them into our special. We've been so fortunate for so many years to have so many great, smart people innovating and creating fantastic technologies that are going to advance patient health, and we've experienced that benefit. And it's evident by the, uh, the improvements that we see every day. The, the advances, you know, the ability for people to live longer, healthier lives. We, we, we've come to enjoy all of that. That's been based on a foundation of innovation. Uh, I don't think we want to give that up. So, uh, and I don't think we want innovators and bright people going in other places. We want them to, you know, continue to come into the industry. So, so why should we care? You know, uh, many people think, uh, you know, we've had, an, yeah, I've, this is a, almost a quote. I won't attribute it to some, anybody, but we've had enough innovation in medicine. You know, we're done, you know. It's like John Lennon, all the songs have been written, you know. Uh, uh, you know what, maybe some people believe, maybe there's a, you know, a little bit in the background, maybe if we, you know, knock out the med tech industry, we can save healthcare costs, you know. Some people said that. Well, it's all this technology that's causing all this expense. You know, let's get those CT scanners out of the hospital. Um, you know, they believe that innovation, innovation is driving up the costs of medical care. And you've probably heard this. You might even, it's okay, you might even believe it. I'm going to give you some facts. Maybe we could change your mind. First of all, medtech is a strong economic force in the United States. It is uh, responsible for a tremendous number of jobs, uh, very high-paying, high-skilled jobs, okay? But it's very fragile. You know, when you think of medtech, you might think Johnson Johnson, Medtronic, some big company, Zimmer. But the reality is, medtech is 80% small companies. Little companies that make a widget, connects up to an in, in, you know, in, uh, uh, inflation device, it connects up to a, you know, a, a dilator. They, lots of little companies with, with small numbers of people in them and funding from venture capitalists looking for that investment, that return, ultimately, for their efforts. It produces a reasonable chunk of the GDP. I mean, it's small, but the important thing is it's one of the few industries that we have in the U.S. where we have a net trade surplus. We're actually exporting more medical devices. We're the only country that actually exports more medical devices out. So it's, po it's one of the positive industries that we have in the U.S., uh, and the impact is quite significant for our own population as well as populations across the world. And most importantly, medtech can't possibly be blamed for the increasing healthcare costs. Med if you look at healthcare spending in the United States, it's greater than two trillion. Medtech spending on medical technology as a whole is five percent of all healthcare spending. So where's all the rest of it coming from? You know, if it's not the big CT scanners and the disposable instrumentation or all of us, where's it going? It's services. It's people. It's, it is jobs, actually. You know, it's nurses and doctors and, and, you, know, and you know, administrators, et cetera. Now, you know, I think that some of this can be, uh, you know, if you look at where the inefficiencies, where's the opportunity to save money? Probably on the IT side. You know, maybe we don't need 
you know, three people to touch a document before it finally gets to the insurance company, you know, things like that. It's not med tech. It's not the technology is not to blame. It's easy to point to because you've got a big, you know, $2 million CT scanner out there, but that isn't the big part of the costs. And that's what people don't understand. And it's, you know, it's very unfortunate. So, you know, what, what, what have we accomplished is, is tremendous. We, you know, if you think about the human suffering that MedTech has actually addressed, it's, it's very significant. I mean, angioplasty, things that we take for granted. These were innovations, small companies, small inventors that created these technologies in the hope that they would not only be established for uh, the benefit of humanity, but that they could create a thriving business that would employ people, that would make money, and the investors that put their money into that to believe in it would be get some kind of return. That's what it was all based on. You know, if we're, if we're guilty of anything, it's, it's actually prolonging life. That's probably expensive. You know, we've incre increased life expectancy, uh, you know, significantly. People, Americans spend 56% less time in the hospital, uh, you know, compared going back to 1980 than they did in 1980. So that's, yes, technology probably has something to do with that. And that's probably expensive because those people are living longer, they're consuming more healthcare resources. So we have a lot, we have an aging population. That's probably the biggest driver. The aging population, you know, if you look across worldwide, it's not just the U.S. has a baby boom. Worldwide, baby boom. This is what's driving healthcare costs. This is the biggest driver, healthcare costs. We have an aging population. People are being treated for many more things than they used to be. And, there's, and that is where it's coming from. So what do we have to do? We've got to make sure we have a strong patent system. I think we're making really good progress there. We have to think of a better way to reimburse new novel technologies. I mean, this is something that really needs to be addressed. And I think you want it. You know, when you hear about, you look in the news and you hear, hey, you know, balloon sinuplasty, new way to treat uh, chronic sinusitis. You want that therapy. You know, you don't want to go get cut up and have surgery. You want to have the opportunity to have something less invasive. You don't want everybody to have open chest surgery when they could have angioplasty. So we want these this, these procedures that can make our lives better faster without so much trauma and pain. Um, so we have to figure out a way to pay for those. Uh, and we need a system that allows novel technologies to get a foothold without starving them. And only the survivors that go through that can last that process are, are left at the end. We need an FDA process that is predictable um, and that we can navigate with reasonable cost. Um, and, and still provide reasonable you know, assurance of safety and efficacy. And we've got to think differently about conflicts. We have, to, we have to manage conflicts, but we should not exclude conflicts. People who may have conflicts need to reveal them, but to exclude them from the debate, to, to basically <coughs> categorize all of their ideas as tainted, would be very unfortunate. You know, very, very unfortunate. I mean, it, it really is not the way we've built you know, the country that way. We have everybody's voice, and everybody gets to have input. And uh, we recognize, we just recognize, you know, from what, what, uh, what background and influences they come from, and that should be openly uh, acknowledged. But we can't, you know, we can't exclude people from the debate. And uh, you know, we need to reinforce as a society how important innovation is to all of us, and how important it is that we strike some kind of balance, strike some kind of balance in the safety that we expect, even ourselves. You know, we, we have to realize we can't 
live in a bubble. Uh, when we get into a car, you know, we, we don't go and believe that it's General Motors' fault if we get into a car accident in the parking lot. You know, that's the way we have to look at the, unfortunately, that's the way it is. I mean, we can't predict everything that's going to go on in the biological system that we're trying to address in medtech. I wish that there was a perfect model that we could get everything out. But things happen. We learn things. It's that learning that allows us to make products better. And it's that learning that allows us to iterate. And if that iterative loop is delayed significantly because of regulatory delay, then we're going to see things that are wrong that we've got to fix. And they won't get to the market for years. I don't think we want that. We want a rapid innovative system. That's what the 510K system was developed to do, was to build upon the innovations of the last innovator by some incremental improvement. And just be able to get that out fast so you could continue innovating and advancing medicine at a great pace, as opposed to waiting for years for the next incremental innovation to appear on the market. If we do all this, we will you know, really repair uh, our industry continue to bring bright minds into it and, uh, and really drive our economy. So for those of you in the audience who are listening or present, who are in uh, a med tech company, if you are, it's your company or whatever, you got to become a member of one of these societies. It's very important. You need your voice heard. This is happening to you. All this is happening right now as we speak. There are meetings in Washington every week got to get on the get on the roster be a part of the process if you're not you can be a part of the process too learn about it get involved talk to congress people directly write to them get get involved express your views either side it's okay but it's important that we all take take very very uh, quick action because it's changing right now the impact of what is going to happen within the next couple of months could affect, you know, your children, your your yourself, your parents. These are very very impactful things that are going on right now, and so your voice matters. So make sure you're a part of the debate. We still have time to act, but the wave is coming. Thank you very much. So uh, questions, I guess. Yeah, we have some questions. Comment and a question. Yes. The comment is, uh, in terms of the uh, parties and players that are against innovation, it would be very interesting to compare them on job creation metrics. And I'll bet you the fewer jobs they create, the more they're against innovation mm -hmm. uh, for very understandable dinosaur type uh, protecting old technology reasons. Uh, but my question is, what is interesting to you in comparing incubators across the great divide between the public and private sector? Because you have a revolving door in Washington, and uh, I also heard that uh, the DNA RNA type patent was reversed recently. So is there anything interesting to you when you look at these small business innovation research grants that I guess are across several federal agencies and, and how effective those are compared to uh, private sector incubators? Um. So the question is, uh, you know, is there uh, a difference between a private sector and a public sector innovator? You know, I think there probably is. Um, I think that, uh, you know, it, we, we try to, the model uh, that, that we really try to execute on is one that, where we can create the greatest 
opportunity for patients that also represents a sustainable business. Um, and that's <coughs> an important component because in our current setup, you know, there just isn't the resource. Who's going to pay to develop all? Who's going to pay for it? I mean, it's amazing because, you know, the challenges that we have in some of the companies is, you know, they say, well, you know, all of your trials have been sponsored by the company. So, you know, how can we know we can really believe them? I said, well, that's okay. You know, why don't you guys, you know, run a trial? Oh, well, we don't have any money for that. <laughs> I mean, how are we doing <coughs> advanced medicine here? You know, where's it going to come from? So, you know, we, this is the issue. I mean, uh, either <coughs> there needs to be that money allocated for it, or it's not available and, and private industry has to do it. So it's either way. But I think that, uh, that you know, you're right now, anyway, a lot of the public, you know, kind of activities are, uh, are focused on, you know, basic science and, you know, very valid and, and important stuff that, that has a place. But it doesn't, it isn't all commercializable and not all of it is, uh, is um, you know, kind of transferable into the, to broader application because it doesn't have necessarily the mindset of how do you actually also make this a sustainable business and so it doesn't necessarily get up to So I have two questions. Yeah. So the first question is that uh, to what extent could these kinds of issues be outsourced to uh, legal warriors? And uh, to what degree, because this seems to be detracting from your time inventing things, yeah. and creating new applications, or even That's true. Um, enjoying the benefits of what you've created, or basking in the glory of your creation. <laughs> <laughs> I like basking. <laughs> I like to bask more. <laughs> how can, um, how can uh, you be shielded from having to worry about this at the expense of creating new things? I don't know. I mean, the <coughs> question is, you know, how, how can, uh, why, why is, how come I'm doing this and, uh, wh you know, how can I not have to do it? You know, I, uh, I, wish that there were uh, a different way but the truth is that you know the way we do it is we all get involved I mean the the answer is everybody who, who has a who has a who cares about what I just talked about today gets involved I mean this is if this touched you in some way get involved you know if you know somebody you, you know who, who can have influence make sure they understand your point of view if you're just a patient listening to this Make sure you express your, your, how, how you feel. Because there's a perception out there that we need to protect everybody. You know, we need to protect everybody from, you know, companies, you know, trying to make money selling technology. But, you know, that's, this is the way our society is built. And we're in a capitalist society right now still. So as long as that's the case, you're not going to see, you know, new things happening unless there's some kind of business part of it. There's got to be some profit opportunity for these things to be created. It's just the way it works. Where's the money's going? Who's going to put the money in to invest in these companies, right? So, so we got to get involved. So the, I think the answer is, you know, uh, for me, as, an, you know, kind of running an incubator, I've got several companies in the game. So I can see how this wave is affecting all of them at the same time. Maybe that's part of it. You know, that's why the foundry, the guys at the foundry and myself and other incubators and, you know, and other pe people who are involved with multiple companies like myself. I mean, to us, it's like, you know, you're, you stand, you watch this way. It's affecting every single one of our businesses. And this is why the, the VCs are also, but, but I think patients and innovators have a unique opportunity 
to have a voice here because unfortunately, you know, big companies have been cast into a bad place. Venture capitalists have been cast into, you know, they're just they're money people. And big companies are just big, big, big companies. You know, they're these big uh, monolithic things. And so that leaves the rest of us. And, you know, if, they, if they're being isolated and excluded from really having a voice here because, you know, they're, they're, they're not viewed favorably, that's where patients need to get involved. That's where innovators need. We, we create jobs. You know, innovators create jobs and, and technology to help people in the med tech space. We need, to be, we need to have our voices. And all of you, if the only part of this is that you're a patient, your voice needs to be, you need to decide. And, and if you agree with what I've talked about today, you need to get involved. I've heard that there is like FDA is trying to protect, like act as a check and balance yes. to the companies that might be trying to further their personal interests. So like, I just want to hear your thoughts and where is that balance between Agreed. like the rights of the patients to be like, I want this experiment done on me versus yes. um, the government <coughs> trying to protect. Great question. The question is what's the right balance uh, for the role of the FDA? There is an important <coughs> role for the FDA. Um, and um, and really, for many years, you know, the FDA created challenges for us in the med tech industry, but those were, for the most part, I think, reasonable. Um, and there's an appropriate amount of scrutiny that technology needs to be put through. Uh, and uh, and, I, and I, I, it, we don't want the FDA to go away. I mean, it's an important part of, of what we do. It, this, should be, this should be a regulated industry. There should be standards. Uh, just like there are in other countries. We have the CE ISO standard, and uh, that works very, very well. The ISO CE process is exceptionally navigable, predictable, and successful. Um, what happens here in our country, unfortunately, is that the waves of uh, the medium, the waves of, of politics, kind of wash over that whole system and influence it. That doesn't really happen as much overseas. Um, it does a little bit, but much to a much, much lesser extent. And you know, we have, and because of that, it's what, it's what, you know, like what happens is something shows up in the New York Times. Some, somebody's outraged in, on Congress. They bring the FDA in and say, you know, how could you ever have let this happen? You guys are not doing a good enough job. I mean, the FDA's just trying to do what they're supposed to do. They're just trying to they, they're public servants. They're doing what they think the public wants us to wants, wants from us. So they're getting that voice from Congress. You know, you guys are not tough enough. And then you know, the next thing that happens is uh, you know some struggling medical device company brings you know the this issue like we can't get this thing approved. Their FDA is standing in the way. You know, and you know how are we going to get it done? And they go to their congressman and say that that's ridiculous. I agree. You guys are not letting technology out to patients. I mean, it's just back and forth, and it's just I mean, they're being slapped back and forth. It's not fair. It, it isn't right, but it's part. It, that's part of the problem. So, uh, what you know, we need to agree on what those reasonable assurances are of safety and efficacy, and and stick to it. You know, let's let's make it predictable, and allow companies to say, oh, here's the checkbox. If I do these three things, it's okay. It's not going to be subjected to some other level of theoretical review, because they're so afraid that. If they let it go, they're gonna, you know, they're gonna get slapped down again, and that's and the reason is because we, uh, it's just hard to predict everything, you know. In real life, you know, the clinical trials by by their nature, study one element of the disease with one aspect of the technology, and we just can't, um, 
we can't simulate the real-world environment in the clinical trial. There's just too many variables. We'd never learn anything. It would be this massive, I mean, we'd be treating everybody anyway, You're just to try to get all the inputs. So to do that, we have to be very specific. We have to narrow it. But in real practice, every day, doctors do what they think is best for the patient. They take a technology and they use it to help somebody. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. And uh, that's just the reality of where we are. So I think w if we can all accept what that reality is, then uh, we can accept when sometimes things don't go right. But we don't necessarily have to blame the FDA for all that. And, and, you know, I mean, if there was something that was wrong and it was hidden or that kind of bad stuff, I'm not excusing any of that. And that's, but there's been some of that in the industry. It's not good. It doesn't help anything. So we're not trying to talk about that. What we're talking about is the general standard being applied for everybody. It just needs to be fair, predictable, reasonable. And as long as it's all those things, it's okay. There's a good place for regulation in the, in the industry. Yeah. That you put comparative effectiveness research in the category of potentially dangerous. Yes. Because it seems like, I mean, it seems like for a number of these issues around, um, you know, entrenched practices or having fair processes for reimbursement, conflicts of interest, that exactly. comparative effectiveness could move in that direction. I think it's a great point because I, as a I fundamentally believe in the general thinking behind comparative effectiveness if applied appropriately. But, um, but it can be also applied inappropriately. And so let me give you an example. When angioplasty was first introduced, the balloons were the first generation. Because they really, I mean, after a couple of monkeys uh, and you know, some animal experiments, but who didn't really have real cardiac disease, they needed to go start working on patients. And they got it pretty successful. But it was, um, you know, it, it really only addressed very few lesions could be reached by these things. And they realized, oh, it's got to be a little bit more flexible. It's got to be this. And then they, then they made them more flexible. Then they realized, oh, it's got to be different pressures because sometimes we get a really tight calcified lesion and other times we don't. We, you know, there was just no way to simulate any of this. So then they did that. And so... If you looked at it over time, eventually the therapy got developed, you know, through lots of these experiences. And these, these, these technologies didn't necessarily hurt anybody, but they just didn't work as desired. Maybe they ultimately got cardiac surgery. Now, a couple of people probably also got hurt, um, but it was, it was a new technology. But over time, that, that therapy has become what it is today, which is a tremendously successful, fantastic alternative to coronary bypass surgery. Okay, now? we can compare it. But think about if we compared it back when it was first introduced. It would never have existed. We would not have balloon angioplasty or stenting available to us today if we subjected that technology at that time to compare it to the existing cardiac surgery. Now I go back further. Let's look at cardiac surgery. And anyone who knows the history of cardiac surgery and what it took to develop the right perfusion pumps without clots, without sending, you know, with, you know, being able to sustain people without damaging their brains, to be able to sustain hearts in a still, in a still mode without damaging their hearts. It was time. It, these were, we accepted at that point in time the risks because of the severe consequences of not doing something, right? So that's how technology, I mean, it's, it, it's not pretty, but it's how medical technology has gotten to where it is. It's part of the innovative process in this space. So um, we, yeah, I think, applied in the appropriate way at the appropriate time. It, it will allow us to proceed and innovate. 
applied inappropriately, nothing new will ever be established as, uh, as valid enough. So that's, that's the answer. Well, on behalf of Dr. Fisher Jefferson, the Stanford Technology Advisor Program and Basis, please help me thank Josh for his time and his talk tonight. Thank you. Uh, Thanks very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thank you, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.